Welcome to Unedited, our fortnightly podcast where we explore the opportunities and challenges the retail industry is facing. From fashion, beauty and homeware, I will chat to leading experts in the industry to shed light on how retailers can create a brighter future. So 2020 has accelerated retail change in a way that none of us saw coming. The evolution to e-commerce has made the industry faster and more unpredictable. This means brands need to react faster than they ever have done before if they want to win in this industry. It's never been more important to have the right product at the right price at the right time, which is the holy grail and the trillion dollar question. So a lot of this responsibility falls on the shoulders of a number of key roles within retail businesses. Titles that have slight variations internationally, and I know this all too well from transitioning from a US-based retailer to the UK. So the first ones that we're going to hearing a lot about today are buying teams who are devoted to making sure present and future product ranges are aligned with current trends and consumer demand, and that they are ensuring that the right product is always in stores and online with the next big thing already making its way down the critical path. We'll also be discussing their counterparts, merchandisers in the UK or known as planners in many other countries. Their roles are exceptionally analytical. They're obsessed with perfect pricing and they are in charge of making sure the right products are available in the right places, whether that's online or in store at those right times and in the right quantities and sizes. So interestingly, less than 20% of retailers use big data and AI to support these critical decisions which we know is crucial for future success. So in today's episode, we'll be discussing how and why you should be using big data and AI to prevail in this new age of retail for effective assortment planning. So on today's podcast, we have Carla Tuttleby, Head of Buying and Merchandising at Viramoda, who I've had the pleasure of working in partnership with for a number of years and at multiple different brands. So I'm so excited, Carla, to finally have you on the podcast. <laughs> How are you and, and how's your new life in Denmark? Hi Grace, thanks for having me. Yes, it, it's good. I mean, um, not exactly what I was expecting for first year in a new country with everything going on, but um, no, so far so good. Oh, well, I'm really pleased to hear that. And a shame you've not been able to come back to London as much as <laughs> But for those of you who don't know Carla, she has an unrivaled CV. So to start off, it would be great if you could kind of tell our listeners about your career, how you started at Burberry, which then has led you on the path to becoming head of retail buying and merchandising at Viramoda. Yeah, sure. So actually, I think uh, I can probably pinpoint when it started around, I was around 14, 15 years old and picked up a copy of my mum's Closo magazine, if you remember <laughs> when that was still going. <laughs> and read an interview with a buyer. I decided it sounded like she had the coolest job in the world. And within that article, it said that she'd studied at the London College of Fashion. So I sent away for the prospectus and then announced to my parents that that was where I was going and that was what I was going to do. <laughs> I love the decisiveness from yeah. the <laughs> no change in my mind so then I, I did the fashion management course there and then once I graduated uh, I contacted Burberry around an internship so I was actually supposed to be there for six weeks and left eight years later wow so uh, yeah 
And during that time, I was working in the buying office on the women's wear team and then moving over to accessories on large leather goods. So I was buying for the Amaya stores and also for their online business. Looking back, Burberry was a fantastic training ground for which I'm very grateful. I think it was a really strong start in in buying and merchandising and also met some fantastic people who are still um, good friends today. After that, I was starting to think around eight years in what my next move would be. And I was contacted by Nike, who were in Amsterdam. So I switched my heels for sneakers and uh, moved to the Netherlands. And then taking with me that experience into sportswear, I think not just any sportswear, arguably the biggest sportswear brand globally, it really gave me a different experience and kind of a different view. I literally went from buying 10 alligator sleeve trench coats in a season to 100,000 pairs of black tights. So there I was buying for the women's NSW footwear, apparel and accessories, again, for online and European stores. And I think that really gave me the scope of looking at a, a very similar role, but from a completely different perspective in the industry. From here, I was then approached for the merchandising director role at Tommy Hilfiger in the women's wear team, which is where we met. And a big motivation for taking that role was to then see the other side of the coin, so to speak, to really look into the planning and building of the collection to then select from. And I was also involved in specific projects like resetting the NOS product and also dealing with the, the celebrity collaborations from the line planning perspective. After being there for a couple of years, then when I was approached for my current role, So it was a really hard decision to move from Amsterdam, but Denmark felt like a good decision for next adventure. So also taking on the role of head of buying and merchandising for retail was, of course, a fantastic challenge that I couldn't say no to. Totally. I feel like it's been such an interesting career as well. Like you've had the opportunity to work at such amazing you know brands but then also kind of having the exposure and experience in so many segments of the market, whether that's fast fashion whether that's sportswear luxury premium such a holistic overview of, of buying and merchandising yeah so obviously from working with you and meeting you at Tommy Hilfiger we know that you've embraced data at your previous companies and you've taken that with you into your current role yeah. so how have you at bestseller and well specifically Viramoda leveraged data and how have you motivated your teams to embrace data-driven decision-making? Yeah, I think we'd all agree that companies are realizing more and more the importance of data and digital future. Within my team, we're really using Edited to ensure that we we're making relevant assortment decisions, whether we're aware of key trends that are enabling us to work on shorter timelines by having more concise fact-based visibility of what's going on in the market. I think thinking about past companies is no doubt one of the factors that make Nike such a huge success that they are. They have dedicated teams to consumer insights and really going through the data. Also, when I think back to Burberry, they were one of the front runners in this. When Angela Arendt, the then CEO, used to be asked who the biggest competitor was, she used to say Apple, which at the time was a completely different way of thinking in luxury fashion. And of course, interesting, that was her next career move. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And, and obviously, you know, 
it's so important for retailers to embrace data, as you said, like that is the future and that's where it's moving. But so many retailers are obsessed with their internal data and historical data. You know, why is that? I think it's always because it's been the safest bet. Like none of us have a crystal ball, unfortunately. And that has always been the best indication to base future predictions on. However, looking at past data only gives us part of the picture because it will most likely not identify where we've missed potential. It's also now quite a a slow process, meaning that you also miss out on opportunities to act faster. And you can then, of course, easily replicate mistakes that have been made. I also think that using data being much more of a, a forward indication, especially with increased focus and importance on the data we can arrive from social media interactions, we can also then ensure heightened relevance. Totally. I think as well, right, you know, where the the retail moves so quickly and obviously the increased importance on e-commerce, you may never have tried that or you might not have historical data on that style, that trend, that attribute. So it's so exactly have that insight. Yeah. And as you said, identify those missed opportunities because you don't know what you don't know. No. So one thing that, I mean, as part of my role at Edited, but it's something that, you know, we hear all the time with our customers and would love to get your take on it. But what advice would you give to others in retail who are maybe struggling with a boss or with direct reports or a team who aren't willing to embrace data and and are kind of continuing to rely on gut instinct and and the way that they've always done it in in buying? I think I'd say showing the value of making business fact-based decisions rather than just emotion and and that gut instinct. We, of course, need to pay attention to that in buying, but it should be that one strengthens the other rather than it being one or the other. I think also investing time into understanding how to use it, how to get the most out of the data, keeping it simple. Don't overcomplicate it. You can interpret the data in so many different ways, but using it in an easily understandable and relatable way will get more people on board. And then in turn, they will also see the value and increase the use of it. Totally. I think it's really interesting what you said, like, you know, invest the time, you know, it's a huge amount of time up front, but the kind of the payback of doing that and the time that you can save yourself. I mean, the endless comp shopping that you could do, you know, and how long that takes annually. And as you said, even just keeping it simple, it's just like understanding option counts at your competitors or, you know, entry, exit and average price points. Yeah, there's, there's so many ways to kind of weave it. Actually being an intern where you would physically go around the stores and kind of take all the polo shirts into a fitting room and work out the pricing architecture <laughs> and how many color options. So I think, I mean, when I think back to how long that took, it's amazing that we now have this at the click of a button. I realized that makes you sound very old but. <laughs> no, but it's so true I think back to like a specific project that I remember I was working on in my previous role in merchandising and like my boss was like right we need to go out and we need to understand all of the leggings that are on the market right now how <laughs> their price how many options what colorways and I was like holy crap this is going to be like three weeks of work on top of all of my other work I was like literally like going green just thinking about it but you know to think that it's so easy and you know you don't have to do a hard slog these days Um, but I guess put simply assortment planning is the most underrated superhero power out there when it comes to to retail and I guess 
there's some horrifying stats, but in the US alone, dead inventory is costing retail $50 billion a year. What would you say are the fundamentals of effective assortment planning? I think it comes down to taking risks, knowing that you won't be right 100% of the time, but learning from your mistakes and not repeating them. I think we're on the cusp of a major change in the retail landscape, and it will be the agile companies that then adapt their assortment to what customers really want, who will be the winners coming out the other side of this. I mean, just look at the British high street. It's going to look completely different after Corona. Just this week with ASOS buying Topshop, taking it in a purely digital direction. And also there are many who haven't and just won't survive. I also think that, I mean, it's always been relevant, but ensuring that we react quickly to the new trends, which is what we can do with all of this data so easily available to us. I mean, also being able to then shift what that means from an assortment perspective. Just over a year ago, no one would have predicted the need for, for sweat sets. Yeah. No one would have predicted that we didn't need to or wouldn't be buying party because we wouldn't have parties to go to at Christmas. So I think it's ensuring that we're then agile to be able to adapt to that. Totally. Like, as you said, you know, we've learned a huge lesson in retail since the kind of coronavirus has hit, the start of lockdowns, and guess also ensuring you've got that right stock in the right place at the right time. And there's been some amazing initiatives from certain retailers using stock in store to, you know, fund e-commerce purchases. But how are you guys approaching this challenge at Vera Moda and what pioneering approaches are you seeing retailers adopt in the industry? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a big focus for us. And also, we have a lot of stores closed right now. So the biggest and highest priority is having the strongest reopening strategy that we can. And from that, I mean, re-looking at how we ensure we are prioritising our assortments, looking at seasonality of styles in the warehouse and our future orders to see what we have the opportunity to ensure that we change it to be as seasonally relevant as possible. Mm-hmm. And having the right balance of newness and fashion with a clear markdown focus where needed. Also having a plan on how we use the opportunity of our fantastic express team here at Vera Moda with such short lead times to be able to ensure that when we do reopen, we've got and we have captured the trends needed in the coming weeks and months. I think in terms of pioneering approaches, I'd say when we are thinking about sustainability, it's becoming more and more important. And it's not just enough to be a marketing story. It's something that is now expected from our consumers to be part of our brand ethos. And with brands like Pangaea, Patagonia, Nike being front runners of this and bringing in the cool factor, and also with the likes of Nanushka and the Frankie shop, they then get the fashion crowd buy-in, which is obviously where it then becomes more relevant to the fast fashion companies as well. Totally. Could you tell us more about your Express team and, and what they do? Yeah, so actually, I I know, especially thinking about the other companies I've worked, they're all called slightly differently, but it's the buying and design team that are 100% dedicated to producing products on short lead times. So this is where... When we are doing our assortment build-up of our never-out-of-stock versus our longer lead time and our shorter lead time, it is with them that we really have the best opportunity to have the most relevant product in the market that we can see from using, edited, from everything that we see going on in the market, as long as looking at our competitors to ensure that we have an offering that makes sense. And 
from working here, it's such a short timeline that we can do that in. Of course, we've got added complexity at the moment with everything going on, but it really is such an asset, especially thinking about the previous companies where it's been a lot longer that I, I think will be such a huge advantage to, to how we come out of Corona the other side. Totally. Yeah, I guess, as you said, like ultimately there are trends that retailers can't plan for six to 12 months ahead of time based on how quickly consumer tastes and preferences change. You know, as we know, whether it's a new Netflix series, is it Bridgerton? Is it, you know, Joe Exotic? (laughs) Uh, I know you love your animal print. Um, So, you know, I guess that's why retailers have this portion of their budget, which is open to buy, to chase into, which a team like your express team, obviously, is there to maximize the trend. How would you recommend using data to ensure that teams like that are backing the right trends for your customer and brand? Yeah. Well, I mean, there isn't an endless pot of money. We don't have the unlimited open to buy. And especially in stores where we only have a certain amount of space to work with, we need to make sure we're back in the right trends that we tell clear product stories. Otherwise, it's easy to do a little bit of everything and then you quickly become nothing. So, for example, how we are using this data following our Monday trade meetings, we have a weekly meeting with our short lead time express team where we also use edited to go through our updated dashboards to be able to brief in what product we would like to be able to buy into and cover our gaps to ensure that we have that latest uh, trend feel of the market. And what metrics are you guys using? Are you to identify the trends that you're kind of briefing into that group? So it really is across the board. And and as I said, it's not about using one, just thinking about the trends rather than not the numbers. It really is looking into what our competitors are doing from a price point, from a number of options perspective. Also, at the same time as looking into, I think everywhere I've worked, we always have the same conversation around prints in women's work. So it is also where we're using the dashboards on prints and colorways to ensure that if there is something that we can see is selling out quickly from another brand that maybe we've missed, how quickly we can get into that, as well as looking at future trends to see or what we think will be a future trend for us based on what is happening now. Totally. I feel like that sellout data is so invaluable, right? And I know one of my favorite product releases that we ever did at Edited was when we gave, you know, our customers the opportunity to see majority SKU sell out as well, you know, and get that early indication, okay, a product has sold out really quickly, you know, and like, yes, we get those challenges of, well, you don't know how many units they bought, but we know as a merchandiser, you know, you want to maximize sales and maximize margin and you're not you know, that product is evidently over-indexed or over as to how you plan. So it's a a good indication that it's something to consider. For sure. Um, But one topic I'd love to dive into deeper with you, because I know we've had a lot of conversations about it in the past, but is the importance of NOS, Evergreen, Basic, depending on what company you're working at and how you, you know, define it. But could you explain to our listeners what, well, firstly, what the purpose of these lines are within a retailer's assortment? Yeah, I'd say the purpose of this never out of stock wherever I've worked is to optimize stock availability on the styles that have the longest life cycle. So it's more your basic styles that you need to secure your unit depth that you always have a full size run of and a full uh, style offer for the customer to buy into. 
Okay. Have you got any examples of where you've worked that would be that type of product? Yeah, I'd say from my experience, it really depends from company to company on what the strategy is around this part of the collection as well. And it's been incredibly different from Burberry to Nike to Tommy to Vera Moda. But actually thinking about examples for Burberry, it was the trench coat, Nike, Air Force One, Tommy, the polo. Vera Moda, we really concentrate on this being our key product categories like denim, outerwear, knitwear, depending on the seasonality focus to ensure that we do have this stock insurance, essentially. Absolutely. And kind of from your experience, like how much of a percent of, you know, kind of sales is is made up by this type of product? I'd say it really depends. And honestly, I've seen a huge variation in terms of what the strategy is around this part of the collection. But having said that, the fundamental objective is the same everywhere, to have a foundation to build the rest of the assortment, to have styles that can be placed at less risk on longer lead times, which yeah. then means achieving target markups, secure volume in your revenue drivers to cover your core colors, to offset your seasonal color palette that you have got planned for that time, and to therefore build an in-store or an online cohesive offer. Totally. It's like the bread and butter, that foundation exactly. yeah. of your assortment that you can You've hit the nail on the head with that. <laughs> I say that a lot it's the bread and butter <laughs> exactly exactly and and I know because I actually used to work in denim and had to manage these lines as well myself like a topic of conversation we would always have is you know how often would you refresh these types of products from your perspective how would you look at that I think it really depends on how you base the rest of the collection I mean from where I've worked at some companies it's been clear four seasons a year one delivery a month and then I think it's a lot easier in that sense to be able to then clearly plan what is your short mid and long term product line against that but I think here is just ensuring that it's relevant that it still sits back with the rest of the collection and actually you you can never wait until your best-selling styles are downtrending before you bring your next ones in so it's really about ensuring that you've already kind of got those next revenue drivers waiting in the wings to take over the sales. Otherwise, you're in a very difficult position. Totally. And how would you approach pricing strategy for this type of line? You know, I think people's immediate thoughts is, is it just the entry level price products? But I'm assuming that's not the case when you think of like the Burberry Trench, for example. It needs to be in line with the rest of the collection. Customer doesn't know when they walk into a store or when they shop online if they're buying noose or non-noose, and neither should they need to. Any brand needs a pricing structure that they ensure has a clear architecture of build-up for each product category. So covering competitive entry price points through to the higher price points where the perceived value to the consumer warrants it. So Nas, I, I don't think it always needs to be just the basic styles. It can also cover more elevated fabrications or a styling detail, but it needs to be where there is the sales potential in volume that needs to follow a consistent replenishment stock model. Totally. I guess, obviously, you've got those Nas news products, but then there's these trend-led items, your fashion yeah. mix. You know, what is the role of those in a retailer's assortment when so much of the volume and margin typically is made up from these consistent basic products? Yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's so important to have them to create the excitement 
to ensure as a brand that you have a story to tell, a story that targets your consumer that you're aiming, that you want to, to come in and buy the styles that you have. You may have fantastic fashion forward outfit on your mannequins at the front of the store that get the customers through the store, but actually they'll probably pick up or a large majority of them will pick up the NOS basic denim or tea, but you got their interest, you got their attention. And I think the worst thing a brand can be is indifferent. So need the trend to be relevant and desired that sets you apart from your competitors, regardless of what they actually take to the tail point. Totally. Yeah, especially when a consumer's attention span is so short these days and the competition is so fierce. So I guess on that, as so many retail professionals, I'm sure can kind of empathize with this, but we couldn't think of anyone better qualified to offer offer our listeners advice on how to approach conversations maybe with your designer, or maybe it's your buyer who really wants to heavily back a trend that lacks that commerciality. <laughs> Everywhere I've worked, I can think of uh, examples between <laughs> this in the design and buying team. But again, I think it comes back to balance. Without the high trend, the assortment would miss that magic. It's up to the buyer to be bold enough to, to know what not to buy into, but to still have that commercial sense of ensuring that there is a balance between the fashion and the more core styles and to really ensure that they know what to back and what not to back and to push back to design as well and when it's completely unreasonable, but at the same time to take some of those risks to ensure that there is the diversity there. It's kind of that risk benefit analysis, right? And <laughs> and is this one we really want to back? And I think my favorite example is my boss, Christina. She was a merchandiser at Miss Selfridge many years ago. And she always talks about a debate that she had with her buyer who wanted to go for this kind of knitted yellow co-ord. And, you know, she wanted to put it in all stores when actually she could go online, look user edited and realize that actually yellow was the most heavily discounted color at the time. And they were able to compromise and they decided that it was going to be an online and flagship only option. <laughs> um, but I think she took yeah some satisfaction when actually it had to be the most marked down product. <laughs> but she was thrilled it didn't cost them anywhere as much as it could. Yeah. But I, I think that's a really great example as well of how we, we can use Edison in terms of our arranging and our clustering. And sometimes it is good to just sense check with what's going on out there to then be able to ensure that you're, you're not putting too much risk behind the less commercial styles. Because at the end of the day, we need to concentrate on, on the sellout. Totally. And I think even when it comes down to things like colour, right, and how that can make such a difference to how a product performs, you know, and if you need to do a knitted cohort, you know, is yellow the right colour? Or (laughs) is it actually looking and seeing what other colours that are relevant for the season that are, you know, on trends that maybe are performing slightly better and, and have less rates of discounting? So obviously, you know, ensuring your first price is the right price is is critical to maximizing full price sales and and making sure that retailers are less reliant on that discounting drug that we've become too reliant on. What principles would you say that brands and retailers should consider when reviewing or building out their pricing strategy? Yeah, so obviously it's incredibly important to to plan on a full price business with option efficiency. But I think when there is no other option, we need to be targeted with our markdowns. I think previously 
in the past, a lot of competitors just kind of have these blanket markdown approaches, which just means that, of course, you're clear stock, but um, you'll also sell what you would have sold full price at the same time. So I think it, and now more than ever, we know that we're in a situation where we have a lot of closed stores that when we reopen, we will reopen with older stock that we need to clear through as quickly as possible. So I think it is about being a lot more targeted, ensuring that it comes back to having the right price point for the style in the beginning when it comes to the perceived value to the consumer. And also being able to have a stock model where you're putting the stock in the right place in the first place to ensure that then you're minimizing your markdowns overall and also your transfers. Totally. Yeah, I know I always get very upset when it comes to the Zara sale and I realize they're not doing a blanket approach and it's, <laughs> it's obviously not selling that's got the heaviest discounts. <laughs> but obviously, you know, 2020 was an anomaly. None of us could have planned for it. And obviously many brands had to pivot, explore white space opportunity. I know you mentioned that earlier about loungewear. You know, even brands like Reese, for example, I would never have imagined them diversifying into casual wear and having athleisure and loungewear. So how would you recommend brands leverage data to identify those white space opportunities and, and how they can make it work for them? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I really don't think a a year ago we would have seen such or predicted such a shift in the product categories as we have seen. I think the way that we can use the data is to see where we need to move our option count, where we need to relook at our open to buy across product categories, and also how we need to approach the markdown strategy. As I said, we no longer have this safety net of history, of historical data. So we need to use the data that we've got in a different way to be as relevant as possible. And as you just said, this is also across the whole industry. We've also seen this from high street right up to luxury. There's never been a time where so many luxury brands have been doing sneakers and sweat sets at the same time as where we've seen it in Zara, H&M. Absolutely. No, it's definitely been an interesting time. (laughs) And you mentioned this earlier about how at Viramoda you, you know, obviously use data and edited data specifically during that Monday trade or Monday selling to identify new opportunities. And we were talking to a, a recently another merchandising director who was commenting on how historically in those meetings, it's been 99% internal data and then for like two minutes at the end you know when everyone's losing you know the will to live someone will throw in some comments about what's going on in the market what's going on competitors you know why does this mindset need to change and and how can you make sure that you're leveraging market data on a more regular basis yeah I think it needs to change because we're going to be forced to change I think a lot of us can pretty much write off the majority of our data from 2020 and then we start going back to last last year. So then I think already we're in a dangerous position that actually we're looking too far back and we need to be looking forward and we need to be using this data to make quick decisions to really think of what's next and ensure that we're the forerunners in doing so, which is why Edited is so valuable with how we are looking at this on a, well, weekly trade meeting but also on a more regular basis because otherwise we are just going to fall into this trap where we are planning on a past business that was so long ago we're just not going to be the relevant players and we can't afford to take that risk 
totally. I think, yeah, it was highlighted to me from someone on my team that a customer they were working with was wanting to look at the past, you know, three years of data. And, and you can't help but think, you know, really is last last year relevant? You know, so much has changed and, you know, the entire consumer behavior you know, has shifted. Yes, yeah, it's, it's interesting to get your take on that. So again, obviously, off the back of coronavirus, buyers can no longer physically comp shop in stores or even travel to different regions for inspiration. How are you overcoming this at Vera Moda? Yeah, I think um, specifically in, in my team, retail buying and merchandising, we have been using editors as a big part of this. Also, Instagram, bloggers, trend forecasting, keeping a close eye on what our competitors are doing in terms of product offer, when they launch newness, what the shift is in pricing architecture, and also the way that we are set up here. We also have buyers in country who are really aware of the local retail landscape, which is then, of course, incredibly important of being able to to find that balance of the, the global part of the assortment and what we really need to focus on from a more local perspective. We've also newly launched Shopify, which means our customers can shop from their local store at any time. So I think it's also about how we incorporate the new digital ways into strengthening our current physical stores. Totally. And do you see comp shopping and inspirational shopping trips kind of continuing once the pandemic is over? Or I, I think they will to start with. I think after this, everybody's going to be so desperate to travel <laughs> that we will do what we did before to some extent. But of course, even before Corona, the majority of brands had the strategy to become more digital. So again, the current situation just forced us to do so. I think the way that or the brands that will succeed will be the ones that embrace it, that aren't afraid to make the mistakes and try new ideas, and that will be the ones that other brands want to follow rather than playing it too safe. So yeah, I, I do think that, that we will continue to have those inspirational trips, but I think there will be a lot of more elements that come into it and they will probably be reduced. I mean, seeing that Fashion Week events now are focused on being so online, there will also be a shift in the importance of physical events overall. Totally. Like, as you said, they're going to have their place, but probably in a different form and a different frequency than than they had before. Because I guess that is the beauty on the silver lining is it's forced everyone to change their behaviours and, and be yeah. forward thinking. So Carla, we always ask our guests this, but what is, to yeah, to finish up, what's the one thing that you would love our listeners to take away from this episode? Uh, well, hopefully I've been able to give some insights into the reality of the industry from my position and focus just how important like consumer insights, data and how we use and edited are and will continue to be uh, specifically from a buying and merchandising perspective for the future success of retail. I don't think anyone can really argue with the importance of data and just ensuring that it just becomes more and more important of how we look at our business on a daily basis. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. As a listener of ours, we are here to support you throughout 2021. If you're a customer of Edited, please contact your dedicated account manager and retail strategist, and they'll do everything they can to support you. For all of our listeners, ensure you're subscribed to our insider briefing. You can sign up at edited.com, where we'll be keeping you all up to date on the latest news and strategies. 
If you've enjoyed today's conversation with Carla, please make sure you subscribe to keep in the loop with our future episodes. And we'd love it if you could tell your friends and family about us. And if you have any further questions, you can always get in touch at unedited at edited.com or give us a tweet at edited underscore HQ. Goodbye.